Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Vineyard. My name is Adam Russell. I'm the pastor here. Glad you are in the house at the round tables. Everybody like these round tables? Yeah, you have to talk to people now, don't you? Yeah. It's good. Hey, before we get going with the message this morning, I do want to make one more announcement. We've got our EP here for sale. Woohoo! It's brand new. It's not supposed to release till January 1st, but we want to give the home team a chance to have it early. So uh, before you leave today, probably be a great thing to buy every single member of your family one copy of our album here. Put it in the stocking. It's good stuff. Every song on there was written by people here. It was played by the band. It's good. I, I don't care. I was a part of it. It's good. I'm just saying that. All right. Hey, if you want to open up your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 2. This is the second week of Advent. Advent is a Latin word meaning coming. This is when we prepare our hearts and the church gathers together to consider again not only the first coming of Jesus, but the second coming of Jesus. And the second week of Advent has a theme, and the theme is peace. The theme is peace. You probably noticed that this morning. We sang about it in pretty much every one of our songs because we're that prepared here at the Vineyard. Yes, we are. But this week's theme is peace, and the coming of Jesus means peace. That's really what it means. It means peace for the world. That's one way that we can understand the coming of Jesus. It is peace for the world. Not only that, but Isaiah said as much. We read it this morning, but I want to read it again. Let's do that again. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. He said as much when he prophesied the coming of the Messiah. This is like 700 years before Jesus shows up. Isaiah says this, For a child is born to us, And a son is given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then verse 7, his government and its peace will never end. And maybe you have a different version, or maybe you memorized it slightly different than that. But verse 7, for some of us, sounds a little bit like this, and of the increase of his government... And his peace, there will be no end. The coming of Jesus means peace for the world. And I love this scripture here, not only because it's a prophetic promise, not only because it's a messianic promise 700 years before Jesus shows up, but because it shows us the quality and the nature of Jesus' kingdom. It's profoundly different than every other kingdom. Jesus is said to be the Prince of Peace and of the increase of his government And his peace, there will be no end. I am not a historian. I am not a scholar. I don't even play one on TV. But to the degree that I have read, that was a joke, by the way. Uh, But to the degree that I have read, and to the degree that I have dabbled in history, and to the degree that I have looked into scholarship, this is one thing I'm pretty confident I can say. There has never been an earthly kingdom that has been gathered, that has assembled, that has formed, and certainly never an earthly kingdom that has expanded based upon peace. Never. Not even this country. 
God's kingdom is profoundly different than every other kingdom of the world. Brace yourself. Even America came by taking stuff away from other people. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but when white settlers showed up on the shores of the east, one of the things that we set into motion was the very slow and sometimes rather quick extermination of native peoples. Over 100 million native peoples died so that we could have this land. See, one of the things that's a hallmark of every country that's ever existed is that, they, is that they expand and then they gain control and they do so by force. God's kingdom is nothing like that. His is the one kingdom in the universe that is based and founded upon peace and as it increases, so does peace. This is good news, by the way. This is good news. See, Jesus doesn't make people do anything. Somebody said amen. Jesus doesn't make people do anything. You can read the Gospels, and I actually would encourage you to do so. You can read from Matthew, from the beginning of Matthew till the end of John, and one of the things you'll never find is Jesus making people do things. Every earthly kingdom is based on force. You do it or this. You do it or this. Jesus' kingdom is never based upon force. Jesus' kingdom is always and only based upon one thing, invitation. Hey, why don't you guys follow me? How many of you understand that when Jesus asks John to get out of the boat and follow him, it wasn't a have to, it was an invitation, and John could have just as easily said, no thanks. Here's one of the ways that you know you're actually dealing with God's kingdom and not some other kingdom. When you can say no. Let's just process here for a minute. When you can say no. Jesus is the hope of the world. That's what we saw last week. But Jesus is our only hope for peace. And by the way, one of the things that the world really needs right now is it needs the Prince of Peace. See, we live in a time of tremendous pain and brutality because the world powers are jockeying for position. That's what world powers do. Iraq is a mess. Afghanistan is a mess. Syria is so, so sad. And how many of you understand that depending upon where you live in the world right now, if you were to read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, it would hit your heart way different than it hit our hearts in the room just a moment ago. Imagine that you're in Syria right now. Imagine that you're being hunted down by ISIS and a counter-government that is maybe no better. Imagine that you believe in Jesus and you read, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. How many of you understand that would hit your ears and your heart radically different than it did ours just a moment ago? Iraq is a mess. Afghanistan is a mess. Syria is so sad. And here's the other thing I want to tell you, no matter what our politicians say, we need open doors. Not only that, but there has been terrorism in Paris. And last week there was terrorism in California. And then a week before that, there was a psycho who professed to be a Christian and he went on a killing rampage at an abortion clinic. I want to say something rather boldly here for a moment. The world does not have mostly a Muslim problem The world has an infection that is blind to religion, sex, or nationality. 
The world is addicted to forms of organizing and the world is addicted to governance, which runs counter to God's kingdom, which is profoundly gentle. And some of us think God's kingdom is gentle. Let me tell you, you can't have God's kingdom unless you have gentleness. It's a fruit of the spirit. One we don't like to talk about gentleness, gentleness, God's kingdom comes with gentleness. And some of us might be thinking, well, how's that even possible? It's like this. When the world was in its worst state, when God decides to interject himself into the middle of the darkness, God became flesh. Eternal God, very I am, became flesh. He became a human being. Not only that, he did not become a fully formed 30-year-old strong man in his prime. No, he became born a baby, a tiny tender baby nursing at his mother's breast. Not only that, but born to a young girl under extreme suspicion. And by the way, the suspicion never would have left him nor Mary nor Joseph their entire lives. Everybody in the village would be talking about the fact that Mary somehow became pregnant by God. What kind of story is that? How many of you understand that if that's your story, even if you meet an angel, even if you have that story, to tell that story does you no good. It makes it worse for you. Really, Mom, I didn't have sex. God did it to me. The story doesn't help. God's kingdom is gentle. The great I am, born flesh, born a baby, to a powerless girl in a stable without an army or even a helmet, not a flak jacket, and certainly no crown. God's kingdom is gentle. And that's good news. By the way, it's good news. Jesus Christ is not a dictator. And the world needs Jesus. And it needs His gentle kingdom. You see, we need His peace. We need his peace because the world is at war. And almost all of the major players are playing. And if you don't want to call it World War III, that's fine. You don't have to. But the truth is we're on the threshold of some really serious days ahead. We're on the threshold of serious days at home. And we're on the threshold of serious days abroad. And that is not some kind of super spiritual prophetic pronouncement by Adam Russell. It's just what we're into right now. And I say this with some force because here's the truth church. The truth is we cannot get out of the world situation that we, that we have right now by shooting more people. You cannot kill your way out of what we have going on out right now. You cannot load another handgun and shoot more people out of what's going on in the world right now. You cannot bomb people into oblivion and end up with real peace. And here's why we can say that with a great deal of confidence, because if it were possible, we would have already done it. By the way, we're the nation that dropped actual atomic bombs on people. And that peace lasted for less than five years. World War II ends in 45 and less than five years we're in the Korean conflict. See, those kinds of measures don't bring lasting peace. It just scares us into being frozen for a few minutes until we get really angry. And I need to say that because if it could work, it would have. And it obviously hasn't. So what this means is this, that none of our traditional means of fighting for peace have brought much lasting peace to the table. And the real question is this, why? If war is hell, 
And almost everybody universally agrees that war is hell. And almost everybody universally agrees that killing people is bad. How does the world end up like the one we have right now? It's a good question. Glad you asked it, Pastor Adam. Well, let me be radically reductionistic for a few moments. Will you? Will you let Pastor Adam be radically reductionistic for just a few moments? Thank you. Here's how we end up in these sorts of situations. We end up here like this. We end up here because culture, culture in a macro sense is really the amplification of our own hearts in the micro sense. And by culture, what I mean is this. I mean the prevailing thoughts and attitudes, not just of people in this region, but of people all over the world. I'm talking about international level culture. The prevailing thoughts and attitudes of human beings is really just the amplified versions of what's in our hearts, though it be secret at times. See, here's the deal. Who we are on the inside and who we are in our own hearts and minds, even the unsaid, unrevealed parts, make up the high and the low pressure systems that create national and international weather. Do we make the world? You better believe we make the world. And then somehow the world we make ends up making us. And it becomes, it becomes a vicious cycle that takes hold. Here's the thing. If the world is nuts... If the world is crazy, if the world is insane, and if the world is violent, it's because we first have to admit that we are nuts, we are crazy, we are insane, and we are violent. And that includes everybody in this room. Me, too. If the world lacks peace, and it obviously does, it is because we are people who don't have peace. So let's turn to the scriptures. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to read 18 verses. It's a little bit long, but hang with me. It is church. We can read the Bible. It's legal. (laughs) And before I even begin with unpacking this, I do want to say, this is a dense piece of scripture. It's dense. Not dense in the sense that it's hard to understand. It's dense in that there's about 19 things being said, and I'm going to say one. Okay? So if you want to read it this week, I'd encourage you to do so. It goes like this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Underline that. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. And King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. And he called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law, and he asked, Where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And they answered, In Bethlehem in Judea. By the way, this is the right answer. One little interesting fact here. Herod wants to know where Jesus is supposed to be born, according to prophecy, so he goes to the priests and the scribes. He asks them where Jesus will be born. They give him the right answer, and none of them go to see him. It's interesting. You can have answers, and it do you no good. We'll keep reading. For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come for you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. And he learned from them the time the star was first to appear. Then he told them, here's the deal, guys. Go to Bethlehem. Search him out. 
And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with great joy. They entered the house and they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests. It's neat. And they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. And that night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet I called my son out of Egypt. And Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. Based on the wise men's reports of the first of the star's first appearance, Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had said through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children refusing to be comforted for they are dead. Well, this passage says a lot, but there's one thing I want us to see in particular. This passage is how the kingdoms of this world operate. It is a stark picture. It's a stark reminder of how the kingdoms of this world move and shake. And I think it shows why at a really, really personal level. We'll start with Herod. Herod's the king. And he's ambitious. And he's a builder. And he's the puppet king of Rome. There's a couple things we know about Herod. There was a Jewish biographer. His name was Josephus. And Josephus wrote about Herod. And one of the things that he tells us about him is that Herod was really ambitious. You met ambitious people, right? I think most people who are king probably are ambitious, but even for a king, Herod was particularly ambitious. And not only that, but Herod was a builder. In fact, he built the temple, the great temple, the very one that Jesus prophesied that would come down, the very one that Jesus said, I'm greater than, the very one that was knocked down in 70 AD. That was some of Herod's handiwork. He was a major builder. Not only that, but he built a few other walls. And he got some clean water coming into the city. The man was ambitious. He was a visionary and he was a builder. And not only that, but he was the puppet king of Rome, which is to say that he had power over Judea to the extent that Rome gave him power and to the extent that no one in Judea gave Rome any problems. Does this make sense? So basically what Rome and basically what Caesar said to Herod was this. Look, you take care of the sticks, and as long as nobody from the sticks gives us any troubles, we don't have problems with you. If we start having troubles with your people, we've got a trouble with you. Does this make sense? Lots of pressure from above and lots of ambition on the inside. And then one day, wise men come. The Bible says that wise men from the east, which is really... Really a biblical way of saying occultic astrologers from faraway lands. But since it does say wise men from the east, I like to imagine wise guys from the Upper East Side, maybe Brooklyn. (laughs) And they came with an announcement. And the announcement was this. Well, we've seen some stuff in the heavens and there must be a new Jewish king. 
Now, scholars have given some attention to how in the world would they have come to this conclusion and what did they see? And some scholars say, well, you know, these wise occultic astrologers from the East, maybe they saw Halley's Comet. And maybe they did see Halley's Comet. But the trouble with Halley's Comet is, is it's off a few years. It came a few years too late. And then some other people say, well, maybe it had something to do with some interaction between Jupiter and Saturn. And that dates a little better. There was definitely some interaction between Jupiter and Saturn. And it certainly fits the story that they came telling. It goes kind of like this. It doesn't mean that so much to us, but especially to people living in the ancient Near East. Uh, Jupiter was the king of the planets, and Saturn, for whatever reason, uh, always represented the Jews. And so they just did the math. They looked up and they did the math. Now, we don't know if this is exactly how they did it, but it's at least plausible, so we'll go with it, right? Or maybe there was just a brand new star that appeared. But in any case, they looked into the heavens and they did the math. There's a new king of the Jews, and then they show up to the puppet king of the Jews with the announcement, hey, where's the new king of the Jews? Now, Imagine that you hear this, and when you do, you become gripped with fear, because that's what happened to Herod. He becomes gripped with fear. The Bible says that he became distressed. A few questions here. How many of you, how many of you, if it was you versus an army of armed soldiers, would be afraid? Yeah, I mean, I think any reasonable person would put their hand up. How many of you, if it was you versus one armed soldier, would be afraid? I'm still afraid. Yes, very much so. Uh, how many of you? How many of you are afraid of a high school student? Anybody? Uh, Joyce is. A few other. Uh, in the early service, without without fail, it was all of our teachers. Every teacher, and we have a lot of teachers who and they all put their hands up. I'm definitely afraid of high school students. Anybody here afraid of middle school students? Anyone? All of our teachers put their hands up as well. Yeah, middle school students are very scary. They smell bad, at least. You ever been next to a 12 or 13-year-old boy who hasn't had a shower in a couple days? I have. It's tough. How many of, how many of you are afraid of kindergartners? Anybody, like, mortified by a kindergartner? I mean, maybe you don't want to keep them, but I don't think anyone has a deep-seated fear. We have therapy available for you, if that is you. Anybody here afraid of an eight-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus? Ricky Bobby's favorite. Anybody? No one. So are we unanimous? No one here is afraid of an eight-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus. We were unanimous first service as well. That's what's really interesting about this whole story is that Herod finds out that there's a baby born and he, and he is distressed. Who's afraid of a baby? Who's afraid of a baby? Now, in Herod's defense, some of it makes sense because if occultic astrologers who are pretty good at reading the heavens come from a far-off land and say, hey, we've seen some stuff in the heavenlies and there's a new Jewish king. You, you might be a little concerned, but at the end of the day, who's afraid of a baby, right? Is it really a crisis? I think this is important because we begin to see how a lack of peace on the inside becomes something much bigger. See, no doubt the circumstances of the wise men coming and the stars are intriguing, but I'm not sure they're scary. What's really going on here is this. Herod's internal weather and insecurity is becoming regional torment. His concerns become questions to the priests and the scribes. So he is 
distressed. He's concerned. He's insecure. He goes to the priests. He goes to the scribes to get answers. He gets correct answers. And how many of you understand this? The correct answers don't end up giving him peace. See, without a foundation of peace in our hearts and in our lives and in our minds, even if you get right answers, even if you get good information, good information cannot override a lack of peace. Good information on top of a faulty foundation actually makes you more paranoid. And that's what happens with Herod. And the really sad part is that Herod was a part of a much bigger story and he could have had he could have had a place of honor in history. In fact, here's the way I see it. I see that Herod is the negative analog to John the Baptist. In the gospel story, Herod is the negative analog to John the Baptist. He comes and hears the first proclamation of the gospel. He's one of the first people to hear the, the, the proclamation of the gospel. A wise men from the east come and say, a child has been born. Even in their coming, the gospel is beginning to gather people who are far away to the light of Christ. It's, it's one of the great things. Uh, the light had been held by the Jews, but even with what the wise men saw and what the wise men were motivated to go and travel for, it's as though God is beginning to gather in all of the nations because that was always his heart. Herod is the, one of the first people to hear the light of the gospel pronounced. And he could have been John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist meets Jesus, what does he say? I've got to decrease so he can what? Increase. When Herod hears the first pronouncement of the gospel, what does he say? I've got to kill him. It's a sad, sad state of affairs. See, instead of honor, instead of blessing, instead of being a part of the hinge of history in a positive way. Instead, his own fears, his own insecurity, and his own lack of peace become regional lack of security, regional fear, regional death, and regional sorrow. Which brings me to this point. Nothing is ever really private or personal. Nothing's ever really private. Nothing's ever really personal. Okay, brace yourself because this is the hard word. Everybody okay? Grab your seat. Whatever's going on in your heart, all the stuff that you've never told, maybe some of the stuff that you have told, all the stuff you've never dealt with, maybe the stuff that you've tried to deal with and you're just not sure how, all the stuff, especially the stuff that makes you insecure, especially the stuff that makes you fearful, the stuff that makes you anxious, all of that is never private. It always comes out and it touches the community. And depending upon the position that you have in the world, it might touch the region. There is no such thing as private distress. Insecure people, insecure people always compete And when they compete, they do damage to the community. Here's how it works. My internal fears become problems looking for agreement. All of my internal fears, all of my internal anxieties, all of my internal insecurity, they become problems looking for agreement. So I will go around and I will look for people who can agree with me, to disagree with me. I will look for a way to spread that out. It's what happens. My internal judgments become the lenses that I see everyone through. 
How many of you understand that most of the time when people are talking to you, no matter what they say, they're actually talking about themselves? Yeah, it's, really, it's like psychology 101. It's really not about the other person, it's just about you. This is why there is no such thing as private disturbance. This is why there's no such thing as private insecurity. They become public. Things you think have a way of touching the community. Things I think have a way of touching the community. Especially those things that are unredeemed. And so Herod's internal and his unresolved insecurity becomes extreme. Becomes extreme. And instead of yielding to Jesus, he goes rogue and he has all the boys in a pretty good sized neighborhood put to death. It's a bummer. But since this is church, we won't stay there. I want to talk to you just for a few minutes before we leave about how to live in real peace. And here's how you live in real peace. I think it comes, I think it really comes from the example of the wise men. They're sort of the analog to Herod. If Herod's the analog to JBAP in a negative sense, I think in a positive sense, the wise men are an analog to King Herod. If you want to live in real peace, if you want to have the internal high and low pressure systems of your own heart not become a part of regional weather that is destructive, the first thing you have to do is you have to see God. By the way, there's something even more foundational than seeing God. You have to actually be looking for God. You got to look for God. You need to have a life that's bent toward heaven. I love, I love just the image I get of the wise men. They spent their lives looking like this. Peace begins with having a heart that's bent towards heaven. Peace begins with having a heart that's bent towards God. Begin to look for God. Even now, begin to look for God. Maybe you looked for God at some point in your life and you just don't do that very much anymore. Maybe that feels like old hat. Well, why don't you start again? If you want to have real peace, you've got to start looking for God. And in some way, this speaks of curiosity. This is really, really strange. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but it deserves a little bit of meditation. But curiosity, I believe, is a cousin to peace. Especially curiosity about God and in the realms of God. It was curiosity that caused the wise men to look into heaven. And it was curiosity that caused them to see things they never imagined. And it was curiosity that led them to see something that brought them right up to Jesus. There's something about curiousness that brings people a little closer to peace. If you want to see God, you've got to look for God. Which means you have to pay attention to the small things. Imagine this. One star in a galaxy that has billions of stars. Imagine that you look at a galaxy with billions of stars, but you notice one thing that's out of place. One thing that's new. One thing that's moving that you've never seen before. That's the kind of attention you have to play. Listen, if you want to be a person of peace, begin to look for God and begin to look in places that you never thought you'd look and begin to look not just for big things, but begin to look for little things. Start paying attention to small things. Small things like babies. Become aware of the weakness that might be heaven's way. Can I tell you something this morning? Weakness is almost always heaven's way. 
Weakness is heaven's way. Weakness is the way the gospel works. Weakness is Jesus' preference. Jesus never carried a gun. Jesus never got in a tank. Jesus never rode a Humvee. Jesus never had a smartphone. Jesus never wore a flak jacket. Never put on a helmet. Jesus never had a bomb. Jesus never had a remote control. Jesus never ran a drone. Jesus never did any of that. In fact, what Jesus did is he let himself be murdered. The kingdom comes and the kingdom wins by weakness. First as a baby, then a full-grown adult male who says, you can do this to me. Begin to look for God in the weak areas. Look for God in the weak places of your own heart. Look for God at the bottom of the barrel. Jesus is always in the dark. Jesus is always in the death. Jesus is always in the hard places. Jesus is always in the places that are overlooked. Jesus is always in the places that are insignificant. Jesus is always hidden among things that everybody else would rather not look at. The gospel of the kingdom advances with gentleness and in weakness. You were saved not because Jesus was strong, but because he laid his strength down and gave it away for you. Jesus didn't win by winning, he won by losing. And it's a paradoxical statement that we've got to grab hold of. If we don't, we'll just become more people who perpetuate the systems of the world that we now live in. If you want to see God, you've got to look for him. And where you're probably going to find him is in weak places. The second thing you have to do is begin to orient your whole life towards God. That's what the wise men did. They saw something and then they reoriented their lives around it. They had lived in one area. Maybe they lived there the whole life. They looked up into heaven. They saw something. And then they allowed themselves to be led by what they saw right up to Jesus. This means you make God central. God can't be peripheral. If you're going to have peace, you've got to get in line with the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace cannot be peripheral. He has to be central. I want to tell you something. Jesus has gravity. Jesus has gravity. And you have to allow yourself to be pulled into his gravitational pull. Find your orbit around his gravitational pull. I love this idea that astrologers, occultic astrologers, looked into the heavens. The heavens that are moving They are moving around the gravitational pull of the sun and other suns. I like this idea that they allowed themselves to look into heaven and to look at the orbit of stars and to look at the orbit of planets only to have their own orbit pulled into alignment with the one true sun. You want to have peace? Fall into his orbit. Make him central. He can displace me anytime he wants and he can do so because he's king. When he was a tiny baby, he was king. When he was 12, he was king. When he was 30, when he was king. When he was dead, he was king. And when he was resurrected, he is still king. He is still king even now in heaven by the Spirit. And he can align me anywhere he wants, anytime he wants, because he's the king and I am not. Why don't you say that with me? He is the king and I am not. That's actually the beginning of mental health. You have to orient your life. And then third, we see it from the scriptures, it's worship. It's responding to his pursuit. The wise men saw a star, but it's a star that God put in place first. And then they began to respond to it. When they began to take their steps towards Jerusalem, when they began to take their steps toward Nazareth, when they began to take their steps toward Bethlehem, every single step was worship because they were responding to God. You just have to begin to respond to God. And then the wise men did an amazing thing. They began to give what they have. Everybody has something to give. They gave away gold and they gave away silver and they gave away myrrh. 
you know what, I don't know about you, but the Russell House is a little short on, on, on frankincense and myrrh and gold and silver this morning. But we do have something to give. And I do think it's instructive that they gave away things that are valuable. You want to be somebody who lives with peace? Be the kind of person who gives away your very best. What is your treasure? And we can't ever talk about treasure, at least here in America, without talking about some dollars. You've got to be somebody who gives away your dollars. You have to. I know nothing that unplugs us from the world systems of gather more than give away more. You want to have it? Give it away. Give it away. Give it away. You need to give some to your church. You need to give some to your neighbor. But not only that, you need to give the treasure of your heart. Not just your green stuff, but the treasure of your heart, meaning your talents. One of the things that we've seen in the vineyard, at least for the last seven or eight years, is that God begins to add momentum to people who are open-handed with their talents. Things that have taken them 10 and 15 years to learn. When you begin to model this and give it away to somebody else and you teach them in six months what took you 10 years to learn, God favors that. It's one, of the way we, it's one of the ways we worship. But we begin to worship by yielding. We, we, we begin to respond to his re- pursuit. We begin to, to give what we have, whatever it is you have. And everybody has something. Nobody has everything, but everybody has something. That's how the kingdom works. And then also, worship looks like this. It's yielding to the baby. It's kneeling to the weakness. Imagine that. Imagine that you are some kind of... Big time, big shot from Orient land. Imagine that you have seen something in the heavens and it has brought you to a place you've never been before. And we know that these guys were big shots because they get an audience with Herod. How many of you understand you don't get to go talk to the king unless you've got some pull? Now imagine that you're somebody who was a couple days ago in a palace with the king who had a crown, who had a robe, who had... People who played the trumpets, who drank the good wine and had a great table. And imagine a few days later, you are in Bethlehem. You are in a stable. The dirt, the the floor is dirt and the animals are around and you are with Mary and you are with Joseph. And there is no fanfare and you get on your hands and you get on your knees and you worship a tiny, helpless baby. You want peace? That's how it starts. And some of it, some of it is even in coming to church. You know, we've been, we just finished this series called, you know, Why Church Matters. Man, I'm telling you, church is the stable, you guys. It's the barn where Jesus exists. Jesus is always in weakness. And if we're going to talk about weakness, I can't think of anything weaker than church. Imagine you're me. Imagine you're me for a minute. Imagine you've given your life to something as ridiculous and as weak as the church. It's a crazy thought. Let me just tell you something. This, this thing we do, it matters. But it doesn't matter because it's strong. It matters because it's weak. I mean, we got some new carpet here. But this is still a stable. It matters because it's weak. It matters because somehow when we come and listen to the word of God from the scripture and from the pastor or whoever's speaking, it changes our heart. It matters because when we sing and we tell God that he's wonderful, things in our lives get straightened out or at least have the chance to be straightened out. And we go, I, I didn't, it didn't feel strong. It didn't feel like we won, but it is. Begin to find God in the weakness. Begin to yield, begin to yield to the weakness, even the weakness that is church. Some, some, some people, it's, it's very postmodern right now to go, you know what? I don't need the church to worship Jesus. I can do it on my own. Uh, no, you can't. No, you can't. It is incongruent. You have to yield to the baby. And where is the baby born? He's born here. Right here. 
right at this church where everybody's jacked up, including your pastor, where, every, where nobody has it together, and on your best day, you're still a zero, but Jesus loves you anyhow. You have to yield to the weakness. See, here's the deal. It doesn't look like victory, and it doesn't look like the promise, and it doesn't look like strength. It doesn't look like anything impressive. You have to be able to find the transcendent in the mundane. You want to have peace? You got to find the transcendent in the mundane. Everybody's wanting transcendence, me included. But here's the deal. Most of what we're going to get is mundane. And God is mostly tucking himself away in things that we think don't matter. Mostly. Occasionally he breaks out. But mostly he's tucked away here with us. Let me just frame this in church for another minute. We do church 52 times a year, 52 Sundays a year. Most Sundays are nothing spectacular. But God is here every single time. Every time. Three or four Sundays a year, something ridiculous will happen. I'll roll across here sideways or something. About four years ago, I did a high kick. On Easter, we drink champagne. And it's real champagne. And people don't like it. And I don't care. You got to find the transcendent in the mundane. Because God's always tucking himself in there in the weakness. That's what worship is about. It's about yielding to God, even in the weakness, when it doesn't look like victory, when it doesn't look like the promise, when it doesn't look like strength. This is where peace begins to shape our hearts. See, you end up seeing a star. You walk for maybe years. This is the amazing part of the story. The wise men see a star. They probably walked for over a year to get there. Maybe rode a camel. I don't know. But they probably traveled for a good bit of time, probably over a year. And they bring valuable gifts. And at the end of the day, it's a toddler in a barn. How disappointing. Wait a minute. I got this prophecy from Isaiah that said... That he's going to be a wonderful counselor. He's going to be the prince of peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there's going to be no end. And I've traveled for over a year. I've bought the gold. I've bought the frankincense. I've bought the myrrh. And now I'm in a barn with a toddler and a girl that everybody thinks is loose. And a daddy who's so desperate he wouldn't divorce her when he had the chance. Right? Yet it's the Lord. Can you see it? Do you have eyes that see it? See, that's the gift. That's the gift. Having a malleable heart that has the capacity for that kind of story. That's where peace begins to take root. That's the gift. That's the heart I want. I want a heart that's soft, a heart that's tender and malleable to those kinds of stories and those kinds of ways that God tends to show up. Amen? Amen. Hey, I tell you what, we would normally do ministry team and people would come up here and pray for you. We're not going to do that this morning because it's complicated here with the round tables. But why don't you do this? Why don't you stand up? We're going to pray for a second. And we'll ask God to touch us, not just some of us, but all of us is always good. Hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we just put our hands out in front of us? This is kind of a very vineyard thing. It's just a way for us to get our bodies connected to our hearts.
It's also just very weak. It makes you feel weak, which is good. Let's just pray for a second before we go and do our thing. God, we just love you this morning. And Father, we ask that your gospel of peace would get born in our hearts. God, we, we just say that in some ways that, uh, that we are a part of a world that loves other methods. God, we oftentimes see the practicality in other methods. And Father, we ask that you would, that you'd get us off the cocaine. That you'd get us off of, of the addiction to practical methods that have nothing to do with your coming kingdom. Father, we ask even now that all of our insecurities, all of our fears, all of our anxiety, God, we ask that you would take them. Because we don't want them to be regional disturbances. God, we ask that you would take our internal private offenses and that you would heal them because we don't want them to be regional disturbances. God, for everybody here who's competing against other people who don't know they're being competed against, God, would you pull us out of that system? Now, let's just rest here for a second. God, we ask that you would come as the Prince of Peace into this room. Give us ours for the gentle kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. Amen. Amen, amen. Hey, give somebody a high five and a hug. Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.